You're listening to Living It Up in Lion City, a podcast about Singapore, where locals and foreigners sit down, chill, crack open a beer, and talk about life here and what goes on in this amazing city. Hello, Internet! Welcome to yet another awesome episode of Living It Up in Lion City, a podcast about life in Singapore and everything that goes on in this amazing city. Now, uh, I'm Sunny, and we don't have Raj with us in this episode, but we have a very special guest, and I'll get to that in a bit. Um, for those who have been listening to our podcast uh, since episode one, um, you know that this is about, about Singapore, and we started this podcast with the idea that the perception of Singapore not having soul is inaccurate, at least that was our perception. And, you know, part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is... We're trying to explore why these perceptions exist. Are they true? And you know, we try to have conversations about it and you know, try to get to the bottom of things. So um, if you guys remember episode two where we discussed feedback about uh, you know, whether Singapore had soul or not, we got a fair bunch of it. And one of them was from uh, Vikram, my brother, uh, who is incidentally our guest for today. So Vikram, welcome. Thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah, that's awesome. So. Uh, Vikram, uh, what did you think about uh, our podcast so far? I think it's a, I think it's a great podcast. I think the premise of the podcast really intrigued me, not just because of the actual topic, but it's my observation that with any topic, which is you know, any topic that has a presence presence on the internet it could be any kind of topic it's highly polarized these days yeah. right and even in, in this particular topic um, you can actually see the polarized opinions around it right yeah. so I, I particularly personally like this topic because I'm invested in it as well you know I live in Singapore I love the city too but at the same time this the topic kind of represents a larger uh, phenomenon where you see these highly polarized opinions about anything it could be about anything not just about the soul of Singapore it could be about uh, Donald Trump's presidency it could be about anything yeah. and it's highly polarized right? yeah. and and I do find I, and I do think it is important that it's not just enough to just express your points of view but to have a proper discussion about your points of view and come to an understanding or to a common understanding or to the truth of the matter, right? So I think that's why I find this podcast a, a, a good start in that direction. You know what I'm saying? It's not just the topic itself, which is, which is interesting in itself, but also when we are presenting things in, 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 in media, in the internet, we should try to have a more nuanced discussion rather than a polemic one where we just like outshout it each other. And so that's why I think this podcast is a very good start in that, direct, that direction. Thank you. Thank you, Vikram, for those kind words. Um, I wanted, I was curious about, you know, certain conversations that we had, you know, before this, you know, where we talked about the inherent biases with respect to the topic at hand. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit more about uh, what you found problematic uh, with respect to our discussions about, you know, soul of Singapore? Now, obviously, I came in with a particular mindset that there is a particular narrative that I do not agree with and that I essentially believe is bullshit. Um, further discussions with friends, you know, both online and offline, made me reconsider that decision or that, that opinion because, you know, there's a lot of people, like you said, it's, it's a very polarized topic, you know, and honestly, I'm just trying to navigate those different viewpoints. So uh, could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you found particularly um, I don't want to use problematic, but you know, what were the points of concern? Yeah, so like I said, this is, so the particular topic that you are addressing right now is the soul of Singapore. Yeah. What I am saying is that it, you could replace that with any other topic yeah. and you're going you're gonna to confront the same dynamics. This Correct. is my point, you know, this is my, my point. It could be any topic. You could replace the soul of Singapore with any bloody topic and the dynamics would be the same. Okay. Right? People... Um, have an opinion, right? They and again, let maybe let's take a step back, right? I I I, I believe that we erroneously conclude that uh, human beings 
formulate an opinion or make a decision after a conscious and rational consideration of ideas. This is what we assume, that people are consciously and rationally considering ideas and after this consideration they come to a decision or an opinion. Okay. My point is that this is not necessarily true. There is a subconscious level of reasoning that is that we are not aware of or people may be aware of but they choose to ignore or uh, in most cases people are not aware of this and there is a subconscious level of reasoning that takes place and in many cases, I'm not saying in all cases, in many cases people rationalize after having made the subconscious uh, reasoning, you know, so you, we use our consciousness to rationalize a decision that was already made in our subconscious. So Vikram, are you talking about internalized bias? Uh, bias is just one aspect of it. I see. Bias is just one aspect of it. Right? If you take any topic, if you, if you listen to any kind of topic on the internet, like any kind of topic, right? People use anecdotal experiences, yep. which are not wrong. It's a, it's an experience. It is a lived experience, which and we have to acknowledge that and admit yep. this, right? They use anecdotal experiences. Many people have their own preferences, which are preferences. A distinct. It's not a bias. A preference is a distinct. You could call it a bias, but a preference is like I like coffee or tea. Right? This. They, they, there are individual preferences and there are biases. Biases are also a different type. There's a cognitive bias uh, in terms of your observations. Um, there are also contextual biases. Like for example, if I'm a man, I would ha I'm biased towards a certain point of view. Whereas if I was if I were a woman, it would be a different point of view. If I was straight, whatever. So so my bias depends upon. It could be my gender, it could depend on my sexuality, my nationality, my socioeconomic status. These are contextual biases, right? Yeah. You know, there are cognitive biases which are universal to all human beings and there are these contextual biases that are very specific to me. Okay. Right? And all these preferences, these anecdotal experiences, all this combined together and there's a subconscious level of reasoning there. This, now, the subconscious level of reasoning is not necessarily false, but it's not necessarily true either. Okay. Yeah, and we use our conscious reasoning to kind of rationalize this. So yeah, I had this experience, therefore, this must be true. We use our conscious reasoning to rationalize it, and then we just state this, and this right. is our opinion. Now, when you are faced with the opposite view, because of the opposing person's subconscious biases, or preferences, or experiences, you come to a conflict, right? I mean, uh, there is a visceral need to to be right. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because you want to be right. Correct. And to admit that you are right is to admit that I am wrong, which people are not. Uh, you know, people people don't want to admit they are wrong. Everyone wants to seem they are right. Yeah. Because if I were to admit that you are right, it makes me look stupid, doesn't it? So I have a bias to kind of reinforce my opinion, or I'm biased towards making sure my opinion um, is better than yours. And, and, and like I said, the soul of Singapore is only one such topic among many. You could talk about, replace with any topic, transgender rights, uh, Donald Trump's presidency, uh, it could be anything. And you will see this polarized point of view. What is the truth of the matter, right? And if, if that's what you want to come to, right? If you want to understand what the truth of the matter is, there is a, you could have a nuanced discussion about you can't avoid biases, you have to acknowledge them and, and you have to come to an opinion acknowledging your biases. I would never say that I'm unbiased. This is just not true. I am biased, but I have to acknowledge it and then state my point of view. Of right? course, of course. Yeah. I think this was my weak this is my weakness in fact. Like we started this so my opinions were actually very combative. This actually started out with this little comic that I did where essentially I was insinuating that those who say that Singapore doesn't have soul essentially are saying Singapore doesn't have the distinct social identity that I think is cool enough or Singapore doesn't have the distinct social identity that I'm familiar or comfortable with. So that was the angle that I was going in and essentially attacking a lot of people yeah. based on that. So it's like essentially I was saying that your perception is wrong. Like your inability to look past your own little bubble of experience or discomfort is, you know, not allowing you to talk about this in objective terms. Yeah, and, and it may be true. I, I, and I don't think you are wrong in that opinion. I think you're right. <laughs> well, see, it is, it, it is, it is true. Now, but, but the, when you point it out this way, like I said, people don't like to think they are wrong. When you, when you approach a topic in a combative fashion, 
people become defensive and then it becomes and then it becomes polemic it becomes vitriolic that's the state of the internet today um, I was looking at a particular topic I don't remember which topic and then this one gentleman I think the comment section is the worst thing on the internet right it, because it <laughs> it helps it nobody depends on which comment section but straight time comment section is fucking bad place yeah but I think every comment section so there was this one topic and this gentleman was putting facts, historical facts, and actual data in there, and the following comments just were either attacking this person, or attacking his his context, his, his background, um, or they just kind of like uh, completely disregard the facts that were, were presented, because they were, because they don't want to be proved wrong, so they just, just, it's verbal diarrhea, it's just verbal diarrhea, right? Some people try to refute uh, the points that he made in an intelligent way, which is okay, but a lot of it was just verbal diary attacking this person, attacking his points of view, and generally, um, that means a person is more comfortable with the stereotype than actual data, right? I mean, like, in the face of actual data, a person is still comfortable with his stereotype. He doesn't want, even though his stereotype is wrong and has been proven wrong with data, he doesn't want to, what's the word I'm looking for? He doesn't want to let go of the stereotype that he holds so dear, right? And so I feel that the internet comment section helps nobody because it doesn't help anyone get anywhere. People are free to express themselves, but it is not a real discussion. People are not learning something. People are not coming to a conclusion. People are not understanding the truth. They're just holding on to their territories and just screaming slogans at each other, right? And, and, and that's what I'm seeing. People stick to their side of the argument and remain there. We're refusing to accept that, okay, maybe I was wrong. Oh, this data reveals something new, this, which is not happening. It's not happening at all, right? In that piece of the comment section, which is why I refuse to read comment sections anymore. Yeah, okay. but I, I would say that this would happen in regular conversation too. You know, this is the comment section is essentially an extension of what happens in right. real life, right. except that it's amplified and has greater reach. Right, right. You right. know? And I agree completely. And so, and that's why you, you need to have a more nuanced discussion, just like a dialectic discussion. And a dialectic is a, a dialogue is a discussion with the two people where you can say your points of view, and I can express my points of view, and that's about it. Which is what the comment section is about, as we've pointed out. That a dialectic is where you express your points of view, and I express my points of view, and we come to a common understanding of what the truth is. So this means that I could point out certain untruths or um, errors in your opinion and you could do the same and I accept this and then we move on and come to a common conclusion and we were both happy with this common conclusion and we accept this common conclusion as the truth. This is what ideally I would choose to see but this is not happening, right? Because we have our own biases. Of right? course, of course. Right. And you're, you're talking about like an ideal scenario, right? Like yeah. can I ask, have you ever had um, a dialectic discussion in real? So this is why I think this podcast is a good step in that direction because uh, it's your podcast, you can do whatever you like. So essentially, like, uh, I, I would disagree because this is, I would consider this my soapbox, you know, I'm just saying, hey man, screw the system. Right, you know, right, 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 right. So you're part of that polemic style yeah, of debate, yeah. a polemic style of debate is where you are expressing yeah. your point of view. So I would prefer a more dialectic debate where you come to the truth of the matter by a nuanced discussion of ideas. And this is what I think um, is important. And this is what I want to learn. I've realized that this method of soapboxing isn't exactly the best way to you know put forth ideas yeah, because there's there's an opposite there's an opposing yeah, soapbox it's always going to be there. right it's going to be so, a bunch of people like you know screaming at yeah, each other yeah and then finally uh, it becomes the the most loudest wins rather than the most so it's the argument that is the most popular the argument that's the most loudest the argument that is the most powerful and the argument that tends to be the most biased and wins rather than the quality argument. You, you see what I'm trying to say. And I get it. And that's what, hap that's what happens in, in politics these days, right? That because there are certain biases that are very entrenched in a society and when you follow this approach of discourse, the most popular, the most dominant group tends to win the discourse because they have the loudest voice. Right. You may have a sane voice, you may have the most intelligent voice, you may have the most well-informed voice, but it loses out amidst the clamor of the opposing soapbox, which is why I think the soapbox approach fails. And that's what's happening in the culture wars. Yeah, in so the United States, the culture wars between alt, the alt-right and the radical left 
and these are just terms that people coin here, no one is coming to a consensus. Right? There is no consensus, in fact. Right? People are just like bad-mouthing each other. There is no intelligent debate. Come to a, especially in a political topic, you have to come to a consensus, come to, a, uh, come to the truth, and this is not happening. But Vikram, um, is there a practical alternative? Uh, which brings back to the question of, like, have you ever been part of, or at least witnessed, a dialectic discussion? I'm not very familiar with this term, but from what you've been talking about, essentially it is uh, a fairly nuanced you know, discussion that allows for leeway on both parties. And it has the, there is an understanding that both of them are amenable to you know, different points of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you had that experience? So a dialectic was first coined, the word was coined by the Greek philosopher Plato. Okay. So um, Plato's books always include dialectics, dialectic discussions. So, the, so basically, a dialectic is a form of conversation that only philosophers are qualified to have because there are certain rules of, for, dialogue, for dialectic discourse. And so only philosophers can do this. And to, to date, I have not been able to be a part of this. In <laughs> Singapore, there is a, in Singapore, there is a, a, a portal called dialectic.sg, um, which was started by this guy called Gaurav Kirti. And he is, you know, like me, he's quite appalled at the state of debate on the internet. And so he started his own platform, rather than, rather than be a part of other platforms, which is very polemic and very combative he started his own platform where we can have a dialectic discussion and so if you go to this portal um, it's not very active but if you go to this portal you will be able to see a point of view and there are people who can intelligently uh, vote for or against and it's 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 very it's very polite it's very intelligent it's an intelligent discourse there are people with opposing points of view and they try to you know um, express themselves and people vote for which view they support it's quite a good platform and if people were to use this more widely, they would be more familiar with this dialectic approach. Okay, so folks, it is dialectic.sg. Check it out. It's pretty interesting. I did have a look at it. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier about the dialectic discussion being, you know, something that only philosophers do and, you know, something that was done way back in the day uh, by Plato and Socrates at all. Um, could it be because there was a vast ocean of noise and then there was a very small minority of which became that discussion? Uh, absolutely, yes, okay. Absolutely. Okay. absolutely, because uh, Plato and his mentor Socrates uh, hated Athenian democracy. They hated it. They did not believe in the concept of democracy at all. Yeah? So, in that environment, yeah. in that environment, they came up with this idea of how to engage in a discourse intelligently for the best uh, for the best results. In their case, for the best government, best state, the most uh, the most just republic. And that's the name of the book, the Republic. And so they yeah. used dialectic principles to arrive at a concept for the best government because they were really unhappy with the government at that time. Right. right. This is how this idea comes comes about. And Historically, in European universities, logic and rhetoric were actually subjects of study, but today they are no longer subjects of study. In fact, the only people who probably engage in some level of logic and rhetoric are lawyers. Yeah, but in for the general public, dialectic discourse is kind of is kind of lost. That skill is lost, and so people don't engage it anymore. So we are down to these polemic debate where you know we have two opposing sides and we shout. And, the, and, and not that, and again, some people are okay with this. Um, that's one idea of, of free expression is that you can express your point of view, and the other person can express his, can also express his point of view. And there's nothing wrong with this, right? This is, some people like this approach. The, the problem with this approach is that the dominant voice wins, not necessarily. There's an idea, there's a concept called the marketplace of ideas, and the marketplace of ideas is a place where you can share your ideas freely, and the best idea will win. Just like in a marketplace of products where the best product wins. I disagree with this concept because it the best idea, what do you mean by in terms of content or in terms of popularity? Yeah, so, yeah. so in, in the, the, market, end, the popular idea would yeah, win. Exactly. In the marketplace of ideas, the popular idea wins, not necessarily the quality idea. The, the quality, the, the most high quality idea does not necessarily win, right? It's the yeah. most popular idea that wins. So what is the most popular idea? 
and this is what I'm saying is that my premise is that the popular idea is the idea that is supported by the dominant group because of their inherent biases. So there is a dominant group in any discourse because of whatever socio-political or socio-economic or social-cultural uh, phenomenon, there is a dominant group and the opinion of this dominant group with their biases become the most popular idea and outshouts the quality idea which has interesting points too, right? And this is what's happening. So with the topic, with this thing upon our soul, I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but there is a dominant group, dominant social cultural group, right? Whatever that may be, right? Yeah. And people identify different things, but there is a dominant social um, cultural group and their voice is louder and stronger. There are inherent biases in their voice, in their opinions, but because they are the louder and more popular and more dominant group, their views get more traction. Yeah. Whereas the view, maybe your view, you're of the minority and your idea may, be, uh, may have some substance to it and it's definitely not wrong, but you don't get as much traction because you're not part of this dominant discourse. Well, I guess I'm just not part of the bigger platform. And and this platform could be anything, right? Yeah. So when I say dominant group, like I said, I don't want to I don't want to point fingers at a particular group. Like you said, it could be a platform. It could be it could be anything, right? It could be any grouping. So if you think that you're the platform, you're not part of the dominant platform. This could be one reason, right? So your voice is shut out, you know. So that's a problem with the soapbox approach, right? Also the, or the alternative with dialectic discussion is that. People sit down, acknowledge their biases, and then rationally come to a conclusion. And this doesn't happen in the real world. It's uh, this, this is kind of lost, and it's not likely to. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's lost to it's lost to time. Right? There are a few people like Gaurav Kirti here in Singapore who actually believes in the power of debate and dialectic, and so that's why he started this platform. And so, yeah, you know, I think that uh, being part of debate clubs and, and engaging in nuanced debate would help people develop the skills to have this kind of an argument because if. Because this is a skill it's not a it, it's a skill dialectic is a skill that you must cultivate you know and this and the part of the skill involves admitting where you are wrong this means that like for example if I were to give you conclusive proof if I were to give you data unbiased data suggesting that Singapore has no soul if I were to give you this would you accept this premise I would not I think there will be a opposition to it. Yes, like exactly. Exactly. I mean, so, and, and that's what, and, and, and most people are like this, right? And that's what we have to, we have to, to cultivate the skill that if the data proves something, if the data is collected in an unbiased fashion and we used critical thinking to come to a point of view, we have to accept that point of view even though it was not your original point of view, right? So this is where, this is where I'm coming from. Having said that, I do think that your argument has merit, right? Without a doubt. Right? which is why I support this premise that of course Singapore has soul. What I'm saying is that the various feedback you get around it comes from this background, you know, like yep. there are biases with different people and, and, and we have to acknowledge them and they have to acknowledge them. And being biased is not wrong. People think that um, being biased makes them bigoted or narrow-minded or whatever, but the truth is that everyone has biases, right? Um, cognitive biases and contextual biases, everyone has biases. And, have, and it's important that we acknowledge them. Yep. And, and, and you can have a discussion by acknowledging this bias. This is, this is what I'm talking about. And this is what I want to get to. So um, let me start off by saying that one of the biggest biases that I witness generally when I talk to people about various things is essentially um, the idea that um, every single place or every single, you know, let's say, cultural entity is defined by how it has been portrayed in Hollywood. Now, this is something that may be inaccurate, but I, I generally believe this. I believe that, you know, Hollywood is the cultural mecca right now. And this has actually defined a lot of things. Now, there is, uh, you know, uh, last year when I was in Washington, D.C., I went to this museum. Uh, it's the Aeronautic uh, Aerospace Museum. Over there, there's a very interesting exhibit about, you know, the history of modern aircraft. One of the things was that... Um, the airplanes tended to be quite expensive to travel and stuff like that. So the airplane companies wanted to get people to travel outside of the US, right? Um, and 
they were losing money against the railway system, which was a lot more popular, a lot cheaper, and stuff like that. So the airline companies decided that you know the closest um, place that you know, U.S. citizens could go to would be like some of the European um, cities, you know, Paris and London, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they built up an ad campaign romanticizing you know Paris, London, and a bunch of European cities. And you know, if you notice their ads, you know the the evolution of ads across the decades, you'll notice that you know London, Paris, and a bunch of other cities have been romanticized, and then romanticized on top of that to the point where, when you think of Paris, for example, it's this image of you know like city of love or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I'm not I'm not singling out Paris in this particular instance. What I'm trying to say is that a lot of these things have been defined by ad spaces, by movies. Um, the very nature of Hollywood uh, before the 1950s was that it was essentially propaganda. You know, Hollywood was used as uh, a vehicle, you know, for American propaganda. You know, uh, demonizing uh, enemies that the U.S. was at war with, and you know, going forward for other things. When consumerism came up, and you know, in the 1950s, you know, the ideal lifestyle was essentially pushed by a bunch of companies who wanted to, you know sell their products a lot more. Now this probably sounds like you know conspiracy theories and stuff like that, but then I do honestly believe that a lot of our perceptions of countries, of cultures, of peoples is based on a long history of Hollywood pushing certain narratives. Right? This is a bias that I feel others have, but then there's also a bias that I have against that kind of thing. Right? Now my question here is that is that something that, you know, you're familiar with, that you agree with, do you think that's the dominant bias? I, I completely agree with this and I would go as far as to say that it goes beyond Hollywood. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I do agree. Hollywood is the West's greatest cultural export. Yeah. Without a doubt, right? And it is, it goes beyond that is my point, right? And we were talking about Orientalism lately, which is a post-colonial work by Sahil where he says that the West for at least 300 years has continually depicted the non-West in a certain fashion. Yeah. They have depicted the non-West in a certain fashion and misrepresented the non-West without consulting with the people yeah. in the non-West. They have misrepresented them. They have depicted them in a way that suits the, the, suits the the beliefs, the beliefs of the, of the, of, of, of the Western group. Yeah. Uh, the West wasn't always dominant, right? But they depicted it in, in a certain way, to, uh, in, in, a, in a certain fashion, to their favor, right? For economic reasons, for political reasons. So, uh, one of the reasons why I got into this, uh, I started researching about all these things is because I got into a debate with a gentleman who claimed that, you know, that the, the, the British colonization of India was beneficial to India, which I vehemently disagreed with, right? I vehemently disagreed with. What he truly believes in, right? And, and can I can I step in for a minute and maybe just explore that just a little bit? Um, so your friend who was talking about colonialism being good for India is this based on you know his his or her perception of what it was like for the other colonies? For example, everybody tends to use Hong Kong as an example. Oh, you know, Singapore. for for what? Singapore. Oh yeah, true, true. Yeah. So is that where he's coming from? No, no, he comes from uh, because. Western historical narratives tend to be cognitively dissonant because they say one thing and they do another. And, the re and again, I'm not saying they are bad or anything, right? I mean, there was certain economic, it, it was a capitalist system and colonial colonization is an, um, is an extension of capitalism, right? But they had, to have, they had to have a moral justification for that economic exploitation of people. And the moral justification that they had was that, you know what, we are more civilized than them, therefore it is our job to civilize them, the white man's burden as they say. And so therefore, it, we did good. Yes, some atrocities, and this is what this gentleman said, yeah, some atrocities were committed, but overall we introduced the rule of law and, uh, and, and, and an economic system and an education system that uh, benefited the colonies, right? For example, Singapore, or for example, Hong Kong is what they say consistently, but the, the, the truth is that they depicted the colonies in a certain way to further their economic and political agenda. This is my point, right? Which is what you're saying about how Hollywood portrayed Europe in a certain way to further 
as an ad campaign to further the agenda of the aircraft, right? Yeah. Similarly, the colonizing countries depicted the Orient or the non-West in a certain way to further their political and economic agendas. Because you can't say you're, you, you, you're the, so what I'm, the beacon of freedom and democracy and liberalism when you're exploiting the colonies, right? You need another narrative to counter that, right? And so the civilizing narrative is what works. And so I agree with your point, but Hollywoodism, I, but I, what I'm saying is that it goes beyond Hollywood. It is, Hollywood is just the latest form of propaganda, right? Um, there is a Marxist, again, I'm not a Marxist, but there is this Marxist theorist called Gramsci who coined the term cultural hegemony, yeah. where hegemony is the, hegemony means a dominance, right? A pervasive dominance, pervasive dominance, right? And, and dominance can be done either through coercion, through force or through consent, yeah. right? The problem with domination through coercion is that it cannot be sustained because you need violence to coerce people, right? It, it's not sustainable. Yeah. So you need to um, develop dominance through consent. And one of the ways of developing dominance through consent is through cultural exports, by, yes. by, by exporting your cultural values, by saying that, oh, by, 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 Portraying yourself as, look, we are the um, beacon of the free world. Yeah. Or, or to put it more simply, we're cool. We're cool. We are, we are glamorizing ourselves. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So this is um, this way. The other, the other. So Orientalism talks about the other, which is yeah. the, the people who we are misrepresenting, and the other looks at you and then thinks that okay, that's cool, and therefore we should aspire to that and. And, and then we give our consent to your domination because you're more civilized, more cool, more glamorous, or what? And we give consent. We give emotional consent to the to, to this dominance. That's the only way we can sustain it, right? So if you see, America is not indulged in. I mean, this is debatable. So American America is not necessarily um, indulged in political colonialism, as in they're not like occupied countries um, in their name, but economic and cultural colonialism is a dominant feature of. American imperialism, as they call it, right? By exporting the idea of a free market. Coca-Cola is there everywhere, and Coca-Cola has been portrayed as cool. McDonald's is everywhere. McDonald's is a sign of progress when you see McDonald's in a small town in the middle of Africa or in the middle of India, right? It's, it's considered progress. This idea has been exported as a way to establish their dominance in, in, in the world, right? Because they realize that the old system of political dominance is not sustainable. You can't Establish dominance by force, you need to do it by consent. And hegemony is the way, cultural, establishing your cultural hegemony is the way you do it, right? So, uh, can I ask, Vikram, uh, do you think that this cultural hegemony of the West right now, do you think that it's intentional? Uh, it, it most certainly is. For, for sure it's intentional. Okay. Again, you've you got to remember that I'm biased here, yeah? because I'm not part of the hegemonic uh, society. Yeah. And if you talk to people who are part of that society, they would claim that in the marketplace of ideas, the most superior idea wins. So um, many hegemonic ideas like democracy, liberalism, freedom of this, freedom of that, they are considered superior values. And that's why they are dominant, is what they would claim. And I, and I completely disagree with this. You, you, they have another agenda, which is uh, political and economic in nature. And they use these cultural concepts to establish a dominance, to establish their um, leadership in these areas. And they continue to enforce this principle on others. Like, you know what, you're not this, therefore you're not like us. You better step up your game. So, right? okay, maybe I'm a little confused here. So the kind of cultural dominance that's, you know, uh, that's being talked about right now, how intentional is it? Like. Because I, I want to use an example of, you know, let's say Coca-Cola in the 1950s, you know. I think every single decision that they've made to go out in the world and, you know, make their, you know, make the Coca-Cola symbol an icon, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, of, yeah. of everything that's amazing. Right, right. Um, isn't it a simple function of pursuing that extra dollar? I, I agree. I absolutely agree, of course. And that's so, what I'm saying that... But Coca-Cola doesn't necessarily, you know, go in with the idea that hey, we need to like dominate culturally. Yeah. 
and I, and I see what and I, and I see what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So there's this whole area of study called postcolonial theory, postcolonial studies, which address this idea. What you're telling me is that, come on, Coca-Cola just wants to make money. They are surely not thinking in terms of philosophy. You're right, absolutely. Right? What I'm saying is that so no idea exists in a vacuum. Is my point. No idea exists in a vacuum. There is a larger social, socio-cultural, and political landscape in which ideas develop. So an idea doesn't develop in. Uh, so th these things, th this this environment has a has an impact on the idea. The thing about hegemony is that it is such a pervasive idea. It is so pervasive that people are not necessarily thinking that oh I need to um, I need to re-establish this hegemony or I need to reinforce this hegemony and therefore we should do this. No, people are not thinking this way for sure. What I'm saying is that the hegemonic environment is already there. People are working, are already functioning in this environment and they function in a way that perpetuates it. No one is thinking that oh, we need to establish Western hegemony over, over China. No one is thinking this way. But because of the backdrop, because of the historical, because of, the, because, because of history, the same narrative just keeps continuing. Every action that the dominant group does tends to perpetuate it. This is my point. It and this is what I'm saying. It's a subconscious level of reasoning which perpetuates this hegemony. Okay. Now this is very complex, right? So let's 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 break it down. Let's let's think of it this way. So both of us are speaking in English right now. Right? We are speaking English right now. We are articulate. We are fluent. We are speaking English right now. You can have a point of view, and I can have another point of view, and we can articulate this very fluently because we have complete command. We have complete command of the English language. Now, if, imagine if you met a gentleman who could not fluently articulate in English, and he had an opposing point of view, and he expresses his opposing point of view in not so good English, right? In bad English. So. Because he can't articulate his view very well, as well as you can, does not make his argument wrong. Of course. It does not make him inferior. Yep. It does not make him stupid. His argument may be very sound or even better than yours or maybe more truthful than yours, but the fact that he does not, cannot articulate it makes it hard for your audience to consider him as a potential because people do not agree, people would not like, um, if people don't communicate properly, if this gentleman would not communicate properly, their audience would not be able to accept his ideas rendered inferior because of his delivery rather than his content, right? I mean, yeah, I, I get it. So right? if the audience cannot identify that particular idea simply yeah. because it's not communicated yeah. properly. Yeah, yeah. True. And why, why, why can't he, it's not because he's stupid, but because the language of discourse is English. That's the environment. So this man is a non-English speaking person in an English environment. Not that the English language is better than his language. This is not what we are discussing. But th the environment is English. You're speaking English. Your audience listens in English. I'm speaking English. This is the environment. We are not purposely, we got to outsmart this guy, therefore let's talk in English so that he cannot communicate with this. this it's not a conspiracy. The language of discourse happens to be English. We invited this gentleman to, to, to talk in our podcast where we are speaking in English and where our audience is English. The, 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 the environment is completely in English, not because it's a conspiracy, because that's how it happens to be. And this gentleman is rendered weak because he could not express himself in this language. What did, now, now what, what can he do? The only thing he can do is, in, because, because we are part of the dominant English language, we are not going to learn his, to understand his point of view. And, and because when he expresses something, the different languages have different nuances, different figures of speech, which, we, which are completely alien to us. We are not going to learn that. So it, the onus is on him to prove the strength of his idea by conversing in the dominant language. In the dominant language. So what people do is that they have to internalize the hegemonic concept, in this case the language. He has to learn English to a level of fluency where he can have a discourse, an equal discourse with us. But then is the discourse really equal? And this is where what happens is that now imagine this gentleman finally achieves fluency in English and then he talks to us about um, how the English language may be inferior and then we're saying, hey. But you're speaking in English. But you're speaking English. And obviously English is the dominant language because it's the better language, it's the superior language. That's why it's the dominant language. And you yourself are having a discourse in English, right? 
And, and, and this is what hegemony is. We are not engaging in a controversy to undermine this person. We are not doing this. But by having a platform that is in English, you perpetuate that do the dominance of the language. Does that make sense? It does. It does. You know? So there is a hegemony. And hegemony is perpetuated by our activities to further our agenda subconsciously. Right? Okay. Subconsciously. And, and that's what I'm talking about. Th these subconscious biases come in. Right? So when you... So when you come across this gentleman who has a completely opposing point of view in another language, you evaluate him based on your, based on your uh, context, right? Correct. And then you're going to say that, no, 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 this, this view is completely radical, it's completely new, and you're not able to communicate it properly, therefore your, your viewpoint is completely wrong. And then the gentleman in question, now it depends upon the gentleman in question. He has a couple of approaches. So one is to... Uh, achieve fluency in English and be able to communicate his point of view better. That's one approach. Another approach is to completely shut down, uh, shut off, uh, completely reject the discourse and says, no, this is a hegemonic discourse. Uh, this is not fair to the people like this one. There's a, there's a post-colonial article called Cap... Well, never mind. Maybe it's not no, no, go on. <laughs> so this person, he could completely reject this, right? This platform. He could say, no, this platform is unfair. Uh, he could completely reject it. Or this person could question himself and say that, damn, when I communicate in my language, people are ridiculing me, they're undermining me. Could it be a problem in my opinion? Maybe my opinion is wrong. Let me learn their ways and see if it's, um, if it's better. And in many cases, and this is in India, there's this phrase called post-colonial self-loathing, which pops up a lot, right? Where Educated Indian people who are entrenched in their Indian culture, who know their culture very well, they have to learn uh, an external culture, in this case the hegemonic Western culture, and inevitably we compare. And when you're comparing your culture, even though you know and understand it very intimately, when you compare it with this hegemonic culture, we fall short on certain areas. And then we conclude that maybe our culture is not that great after all. It's not as... I mean, like, European values are obviously better, that's why they're hegemonic, and our values have because not that's been... that's the default that we're comparing against. Yeah, we're, we're comparing against this default, and it's the same thing with language, right? He's saying that my argument fails in, with an English audience. Maybe there's a flaw in my argument. Maybe I should drop this level of argument altogether and adapt, adopt this hegemonic stance, right? And, and this is what I feel is happening with, uh, in, in many debates, in, at least in post-colonial theory. This is what post-colonial theory is all about, right? Like, how do we reject? How do we reject that colonial representation uh, that was um, enforced upon us? How do we reject this and come with our own narratives, right? So, post-colonial theory is not advanced in many countries. Um, the leaders in post-colonial discourse is obviously the Indians. Um, Edward Said, who was Middle Eastern, Franz Fanon from Africa, Dr. French colonialism. These are the leaders in, in, in uh, post-colonial studies. One of the most colonized parts of the world is actually Southeast Asia. And if you research on uh, post-colonialism in Southeast Asia, there is not a lot of material, right? There was one paper written by a Malay intellectual who said that uh, post-colonialism in Southeast Asia is characterized by uh, a lack of... Um, a lack of theoretical sophistication and methodological rigor. What that means is that post-colonial studies in, South, in Southeast Asia is not given a lot of importance. People are not bothered to reconstruct their narratives. Um, whereas in India, we have this aggressive anti-colonial stance, an extremely aggressive anti-colonial stance. I think there is historical context yes, you know, for yes, which that yes, kind of sentiment yes, came yes, up. Because India was colonized differently yeah. and was decolonized differently Correct. compared to other countries. And in the decolonization process, different countries follow different strategies. So even though India adopted the British parliamentary system, we adopted a socialist economy, which is a complete failure, by the way, because the free market economy is a successful idea, whereas the socialist economy is, is nonsense. But one of the reasons why the Indians adopted it was because of the trauma of colonization, right? And so they adopted this approach, closed their economy. And if, when they closed the, the country, they developed their own indigenous cultural forms like Bollywood, for example, which is such a powerful movement in powerful culture. It's iconic in India. It is, it is. Right? It is iconic in India. And up until the 90s, people 
Bollywood was the uh, cultural aspiration that people lived up yep. to. It's only in the 2000s after India liberalized in 1991 that, yeah, that, that Western influence has come into, into, into Bollywood movies. Right? Up until then, if you talk to Indians my age, they really relate more to Bollywood content than Hollywood content. Right? So the effect of, the, the effect of Holly, Hollywoodism, as you say, is a little bit, is, is not that deep in people of our generation. And, and I completely and agree. As opposed to people in the current generation, or so the internet and stuff. I, Vikram, I do want to say this though. Like, so when I mentioned that Hollywoodism, okay, the term the Hollywood cultural hegemony, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be Hollywood per se. What I'm trying to say is that we are all essentially victims of bias based on, you know, pop media. Yeah. Okay. I mean, now it, it yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 what I'm saying is that yes, I agree with you. And media is just one arm of a larger. Uh, hegemonic system. Uh, can I can I ask you about this though? Um, so you know, over the last couple of decades, there has been you know a surge in interest over you know K-pop. You know the Hallyu wave. It's become like a massive thing. You know Indeed, to the point yeah. where it is a cultural touring force. Yeah, yeah. Like how, where does that stand in the grand scheme? Of yes, and, and this is a wonderful thing that is happening. Is that you know, like I said, India developed its own. Um, it, Bollywood developed in a closed Indian economy, right? And these regional um, cultural um, uh, movements have started. And I think this is a good. It is. It is. It's it a is. good thing. It, it, it is in the right direction. It's actually the migration of media. Yeah, it is right. in the right direction. It is in the right direction. It it it, it perpetuates. It, it 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 stops the misrepresentation of certain groups that have been traditionally misrepresented right. by hegemonic media. And this is where I want to just probably go back a bit. And ask you about this. So you mentioned that you know, like when I talked about you know, Hollywoodization of you know culture in general, it has it has come to the point where Hollywood or any other dominant media, like actually redefines the culture of a particular place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, having said this, you mentioned you you said that you know, post-colonial. What is what's the word that you use? Like it has like a greater colonial um, overture. You know that has been influencing all of this. Do you really think this is true in the age where it's easier to consume different kinds of media from different places? J-pop, K-pop—they've all you know made their mark in you know defining what people think of a particular place. Um, where does that idea of a post-colonial hangover come in? Yeah, because um, the, because the past post-colonialism and like I said, post-colonial studies is basically the effect. That, colonization period had on the colonies. This has been going on for a couple of decades. We are getting out of the hangover. The hangover is by no means a permanent state, right? We get out of the hangover. And we are getting out of this hangover, right? And that's why the, the surge of, um, of K-pop, J-pop and this regional, um, this, this, this regional media yeah. uh, is rising. So we are getting out of this post-colonial state. So what I'm saying is that for the past few decades, with American dominance of the cultural sphere, the cultural space, me, it is an aspect of post-colonial thought, right? And uh, it's 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 going up. It's 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 dying. It's dying, right? And this is a good thing. I think this is a good development. Okay. What I'm saying is, still persists. It still persists in the way we think about many things. You know, if you see Singapore, the way Singapore decolonized was very different from the way the India decolonized, right? Singapore de Singapore adopted a British parliamentary system. It also adopted a free market economy very successfully. It adopted a free free market economy, but if you look at the education system in Singapore, they don't really focus a lot on the, the tyranny uh, of, of, of British colonialism. They don't focus a lot on um, exploitation in Singapore, whereas the Indians focus a lot on, on it. That's because a lot of that happened. happened. Yes, exactly, because India was colonized differently, but Singapore was colonized differently. And Singapore was built by the British in, in effect. It was built as a trading port. It was designed as such, but India was, it was completely different, right? And uh, so post, during the decolonization process, the Singaporeans have no need of portraying uh, the British as villains. They have no need of... Um, of villainizing colonialism. They have no need of having an anti-colonial stance at all. There's no need. The city was built by the British and they just continued it and made it better, right? Whereas in India, it was a lot of, there was a lot of antagonism against the British and because the country was not, India was never a united country. It was united by the British. In fact, one of the 
first. People always think that the government's job is development. Actually, it's not entirely true. Government job is development, but it's also propaganda. And so one of the things that the Indian government did was this nation-building exercise where the best way to create unity is by identifying an enemy. And after independence, the enemy that we identified was the British. And then we built a nation around this antagonism against the British. And so if you talk to Indian people of our generation, the, the, the media that we consumed, the, the, the textbooks that we read, the history that we learned, the textbooks that we read, the movies that England, we saw were yeah. strictly anti-British. Yeah. It was anti-strictly anti anti-British. So much so that if you were a westernized Indian, you were made fun of. Yeah. Whereas that is not the case here. You see, here being westernized is not a problem at all. Um, in fact, the West is still looked up to. Um, Singapore is quite a westernized city. It's an English. The, the Singaporeans have embraced English, which is a good thing, by the way. In India, also, English is one of the official languages, yeah. but there's a lot of acrimony about it, right? There's one group of people saying, no, we should stop using English as a colonial language next and force our own national language. Another group of people saying, no, we have our own language. We, want, we, we are not going to accept the national language that you define, so let's stick to English. There's a lot of acrimony around English as a language, but here in Singapore, people have largely which is also a multiracial society, but people have largely just accepted and embraced English. You know, they've accepted and embraced English, right? Because like you said, you know, there was there's no example of cultural or, you know, colonial trauma. Here. Yes, exactly. But exactly. I do want to go back to something that you mentioned about there is a lack of colonial trauma in the Southeast Asian region. Is yeah. there really no example? Yeah, no, no. So, uh, and this is what I've been stumped on, and you're right. So, Singapore for sure, no. The One of the countries that were really trauma tra traumatized by the colonial period was Vietnam. Okay. Vietnam had a terrible post-colonial history, like terrible post-colonial history. They were colonized by the French, then invaded by the Japanese, the French tried to take over, they fought, they became communists, then the Americans intervened, they divided the country into two, and then there was a Vietnam War fought, and then the country plunged into poverty and chaos. And Vietnam history is very turbulent, one of the worst instances of post-colonial trauma in Singapore. The decolonization process was very difficult for the Vietnamese. But you still don't see that kind of antagonism towards the ex-colonies, sorry, the ex-colonizer, towards the colonizer. Vietnam doesn't seem to have it. If you talk to Vietnamese people, they say, yeah, the French ruled us, but they don't seem to have that antagonism against them, you know, whereas the Indians, we have this real, even today, like, if someone is going to tell me something like, you know, colonialism is good for the country, I... Just stopping yourself from punching the I, I am yeah. strongly against this point of view, but you don't see this with the Vietnamese. In fact, in many Southeast Asian countries, I don't see that antagonism against the the, the colonizer. Whereas in Southeast, in South Asia, like India, uh, the Middle East, they have a very antagonistic relationship against uh, against the, their colonizers, but more so than India. India, we've kind of we have more diplomatic approach about these things, but the, the Middle East, is, to them, the colonizers are enemies. Even the Africans don't have a, um, they have good relationships, Africans are more like India, they have good relationship with the previous, with the, the colonizer, but they are not big fans of them either, yeah, but in Southeast Asia, you don't see that antagonism, that, that, that anger is not there, you know, it's, 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 and I always find this strange that why wouldn't, especially Vietnam, why wouldn't they have it? One common feature about Southeast Asia was that they were all invaded by the Japanese, and Japanese took over. And eventually, the Allies had to liberate, quote unquote, liberate them, right? And so this could be. Okay, is that the perception that these guys liberated us? It at some could point? be. It could be. Again, okay. I'm not sure about this, right? I'm not sure about this. What, what I noticed is that because India decolonized in a different way, the government of India instituted a very strong anti-colonial narrative. As a result of which, we, and, and even we bought into it. We, right? we, we bought into it, yeah. right? and that's propaganda too. Yeah. Because if you read about because. If, a, if my, my friend was telling me that you know, there were good things that, the, that British colonies have bought in India, this is not entirely untrue. That is, there are truths in this, right? Okay. Yeah, and I acknowledge that there are truths in this, but by and large, because I bought into this propaganda, I'm against it. But in Singapore there, or, or in Southeast Asia, there has not been a very strong anti-colonial narrative that was instituted. And as a result, people don't have a kind of antagonism towards a hegemonic world power. And so, and, and, and so people are more What's the word? They are more prone to worship the West, um, in, in because to them, to the to the to, in this geography, the West is still considered the epitome of progress and liberalism. So let's emulate them. Let's follow them. So many countries, many Southeast Asian countries, uh, like Singapore, for example, they 
invaded the West. They took those ideals, the, the free market economy, and they built on them, and, and, and they progressed much further. Singapore is touted as an example of a successful post-colonial country. I disagree with this completely because I think that the progress that Singapore had was because of the Singaporean leaders and not because of its of, of, of the colonizer. Yeah. Because the colonizer in, institutes the rule of law in the parliamentary system or the economy for their benefit. Whatever institutions that the colonizers have introduced in India was for their benefit, not for the benefit of the people. What the Singaporeans did is that in post-colonial period, they took these institutions, developed and built on it, and became very successful for their people, which is which is really great, right? But what I'm saying is that the Singaporeans do not have this anti-colonial stance, or a very strong anti-colonial stance. In fact, Lee Kuan Yew, I think, he himself said something like, let's just move on, you know, let's just build a, build a nation together. And they, the Southeast, I, I believe that the Southeast Asian countries, you know, just dropped the baggage and just moved on and proceeded with the task of nation building. Whereas we Indian people, we, we held on to that baggage, you know, we held on to that baggage. Uh, because we were colonized differently too. Right. right. We held on to this baggage. And so we, a lot of Indian people have a healthy suspicion, I won't, say, I won't use the word healthy, we have a, still a suspicion of, of Western. I mean, uh, now that you think about it, like I honestly never really thought about this a great deal, but the more you talk about it right now, I realize that I think a lot of my opinions, a lot of my stances, essentially could have probably been rooted from that yes, inherent exactly. anti-Western bias. Yes, and that's what I'm talking about. We all have our biases, and we have to acknowledge this bias. So when I'm talking to a person who claims that colonialism was good for India, I have to acknowledge my bias in this. It's important for me to see where it was good. It's very important for me to see this. I have to see it. Yes, there are good things. I have to see it. What I what I'm saying is that because because of global hegemony, the, and, and, and like I said before, like with the language example, it's not a conspiracy. That's just the dominant discourse. So the Europeans were not evil people, and I don't want to portray it this way. Right? I'm not saying they are evil. They, there's a German word called zeitgeist, which means the spirit of the times, yeah. the morality of the times. That's what they did, you know, and of all the Europeans who moved to India, of course, some were mercenaries, some were businessmen, some were missionaries, some were educators, some were scholars. I mean, you can't just vilify an entire nation. They were just following the zeitgeist of their times, right, the spirit of their times. And they were working in a, in a hegemonic uh, environment. So if you were to invite a gentleman who could not speak English, but you are having a platform in English, doesn't make you a bad person. You're not trying to purposely undermine him. You know, but then the odds are just inadvertently stacked yeah, against him. It's stacked against him because he is functioning in a hegemonic environment, yeah. and it's not in his control. So, and that's what the Indian intellectuals call post-colonial self-loathing, where a lot of Indian people struggling this, trying to make sense of, of this hegemonic space, right? Because we have a culture that we know very deeply, more so than the Western intellectual who's visible present to us, but we com continually compare it with our, with with with. Uh, the hegemonic value, and we realize that it comes short, Look, you know, and then we, many, many Indian people, we completely disown it, disregard our heritage and adopt these values, hoping to assimilate, and this is a cause of a lot of psychological stress. There's a lot of identity conflict. There's a lot of identity conflict. crisis and conflict. Franz Fanon talks about this. He has written a book called um, Black Skin, White Masks, right? Who's the author? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a guy called Franz Fanon, and he was a psychologist. Okay. Uh, psychologist who, uh, who he was a, he was a black man he was a, he was a black man he was from Martinique and uh, he moved to Paris and he was trained in psychology and he would work with Algerians who was also a French colony and would he, he worked with a lot of people who had this identity crisis in post-colonial Algeria right and that's where he came up with this so he's also one of the leaders in, in post-colonial theory that the post-colonial period is characterized with this identity crisis among the colonized right. And, and different countries decolonized differently. So what Indians did was that they went on this really... Uh, went the other way, essentially. Yeah, no, but we went on the strong anti-colonial stance, yeah. right? which is not bad. I'm not, I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's a good thing, in fact, for people to... Uh, we, we question it. We, we, I mean, for a country in times of crisis, I think it's important for them to embrace a certain distinct identity. identity and, rally, and, and the best way yeah. to, to have an identity is to identify an enemy. You see, that's very course, important in political theory. So that's what they did. Say, and that's what they had to do to keep it as a country. And um, but it, this, it still causes a lot of, especially for people of the post, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, the colonies, 
they do have this identity crisis because they, they, they know their culture, they also know the hegemonic culture, and they constantly compare the two. They find, it, find their own culture lacking, and they tend to, some of them tend to, some of them reject it. Not all, some of them reject it, adopt the other values. Some of them remain confused. Some of them completely reject Western values. Some of them completely reject Western values and become like a fanatic for their own values, which you can see in certain countries as well. So, there are, so what, that's what I'm saying, right? That the, when we are talking about points of view from this part of the world, we have to acknowledge that there is a certain post-colonial bias that comes creeps in. When you ask for opinions from the other part of the world, from the hegemonic part of the world, they are going to have opinions that reinforce their hegemony. Again, not maliciously, not, it's not a conspiracy. That's what they know, right? That's the environment, right? I mean, if an English-speaking audience were to listen to this, to this gentleman who was speaking in broken English, I mean, I wouldn't blame them for thinking that this guy's point of view is, is bullshit. Right. Right? Because he's not able to articulate this well, you know, and, and so you couldn't, can't blame them for thinking that way. Okay. So, I think, and just like you mentioned about J-pop and K-pop, and these are uh, alternative uh, movements, and that's why I think having conversations like this or uh, dialogues like this and I think I just went real. I just went on a rant. I know that's that. I want to keep it very simple, but I think I just ended up ranting. But my my point is that having these kind of discussions is important so that the other party has a voice, right? But there was an essay written by Gayatri Spivak, uh, another post-colonial scholar. And it was uh, the essay was called "Can the Subaltern Speak?" What is, what is yeah. subaltern? So subaltern is, so there is, um, a subaltern is a group of marginalized people who have no voice. Okay. Right? So there are oppressed people, but some oppressed people have voices where they can protest. Yeah? Like, for example, the, the, the gay rights movement, right? The gay people portray themselves as, the gay people um, have a voice, they have a rights movement, but there are marginalized groups that have no voice at all. These marginalized groups are called subalterns, and they don't have a voice. The reason why she writes this essay is that in the, in the colonial times, a lot of the people who the colonists were depicting had no voice. Okay. And so they depicted them in this way. And this narrative becomes accepted. Right? So the, the submissive Asian or the uh, superstitious Indian or the uncivilized whatever, yeah? These narratives came to be accepted without uh, this, this, without considering the yeah. people who they were representing or depicting. So those people became subalterns. And now, in this age, we don't have to be subalterns anymore. And so, just because a person, let's say, um, expresses a point of view, let's listen to this point of view, but you also have a voice and you can, uh, you can express it. So, so even though, like you said, you were, we were talking earlier about soapboxing, and if that's what you like, this is fine. It still gives you a voice, so it's, that's what I'm saying. It's fine to have that polemic approach, to have a soapbox approach. And it's, it's okay, um, because at least now you have a voice. But you have to remember that the, if in, with that approach, the, the dominant voice, the louder voice wins, always wins, right? Yeah. So anyway, so then, so again, back to your topic, Soul of Singapore. I wanted to talk about this, but... I didn't get a chance to do that, no, right? No, no. Uh, I, I, didn't, I don't want to ramble so much. I think I ramble way too much. But my, my, he, my, he does my, that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> my concept, again, you know, when, when we were talking about the soul is such an intangible thing. So it's so intangible, you can't define it. And I agree with you when we talked about it. It's so intangible. So, to me, it is always a subjective opinion. It is very subjective. To me, I do believe Singapore has soul because if you assume that, so we can't define soul because there's many different definitions, but if you assume that every person is a soul, and if you are going to associate that with the city, um, I would axiomatically say that every city has a soul, and it depends on whether you have connected it with it or yeah. not, right? And this is what I believe, it's a subjective thing. So just because, so if you axiomatically believe that every person has a soul, but you may not like every person, this doesn't mean that person is soulless, it just means that you're not connected to this person for whatever reason, right? And so for me, I do believe Singapore has soul because I have connected to the city. I have grown as an adult, as an individual in the city. So for me, I love the city. Of course, 
Of course it does. So this is like what I want to kind of just, just put that out there. Yeah? <laughs> and, and, and again, I'm saying not based on, because I think it's subjective. It is very subjective. Singapore does have a distinct culture. It may not have a high cultural footprint, but it has a distinct culture. And if you have connected it, connected with it, you have connected with the soul of Singapore, period. And this could be any country. Yeah? Every country has a distinct culture. If you connected with it, you connected with the soul of this country. This is what I would this is what I would say. To those who uh, think that Singapore is soulless, I think they are wrong because I think they should rephrase it as they're not connected yeah. with okay. that city. Okay. And this does not make them bad or anything. I mean they're just not connected. I mean, you can't like there, everybody. there are circumstances that yeah. didn't allow them to Yeah, connect. exactly. You can't yeah. like everybody. There's no way I can like everybody. You know, the guy Correct. on the street who's walking there, you know, he may have, he has his own soul. He may have people who love him and like him. I'm not connected with him. This does not mean he's soulless. I just don't make this connection. So that's what, that's something I just want to put out there. So I completely support this premise that Singapore does have soul, but we are not connected with it. And the reason why we are not connected with it is because we have some subconscious biases. Um, we have certain anecdotal experiences, and we have our own preferences, right, which prevent us from connecting, right, and, and, and that's why people assume that Singapore has no soul, and the loudest voice becomes the, becomes the, the loudest voice wins. The loudest voice wins. Thank you. Thank you for that insight, Vikram. Uh, and on this note, I think we're going to call it quits. Um, any, any final thoughts? No, it's good. Besides I, all I, the I, other final thoughts, I, I think I think I ranted way too much. I wasn't expecting to ramble and rant. I was just I wanted to be very succinct, but I failed as usual. So yeah. that's that's all right. Yeah, so I didn't mean to complicate it. I just no, but it's all good. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is the kind of you know insight that we really want to have. Yeah, but I think it's really disjointed and like there's a lot of things that uh, you you underestimate the power of my editing. So <laughs> you will be okay. Um, all right, guys, uh, and we're done with this episode of the podcast. Please follow us on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. We are on YouTube. Uh, you can also check us out on any of the other podcast apps of your choice because we ought to be there except for Spotify, which we should be in hopefully soon. Um, and you know, until the next episode, see you then.